absolution is acidic, a litmus test. Oh, a litmus test is nothing like the computer-generated chemical analysis that we can do now of any solution, whether it be uh, uh, blood or, uh, or some toxic waste or whatever, to find out exactly what the makeup is. Lit litmus test is not like that, but it is helpful for it immediately sends us in one direction or the other. It's a quick indicator, a dividing line, a simple but crucial test that either this solution is one way or the other. Wouldn't it be nice if we had a litmus test of Christianity? A little paper we could kind of put under our tongue comes out red, it's real Christianity. If it come out, comes out blue, it's phony. Wouldn't it be great? Friday nights, we're in Dead Theologian Society. We're reading about Jonathan Edwards, who wrote the great work, the treatise of, on religious affections. And what that is, is this very detailed, carefully reasoned out examination, analysis of what is true Christianity. What is not? Well, that's good to give attention to. But wouldn't it be great if we had a nice, simple little test to kind of maybe not tell us everything, but to kind of get us pointed in one way or another? Yes, God thinks our, our faith is valid, or no, he doesn't. Well, in our text this morning, I think that James is suggesting just such a test. Not a thorough description of the faith, not some complete analysis of what we must believe, but a litmus test to show us quickly, to give us a quick indication as we look at ourselves whether our faith is valid or not. This text talks about religion, uses the word several times. That's a word that the scripture almost never uses, religion. When we think about religion, we often think about the outward trappings of religion, you know, uh, uh, liturgies and prayers and vestments and uh, pulpits and churches and sanctuaries and, and uh, styles of music. And we think of that as religious, holy days, and rites and rituals, religion. All those things have their place, but what about the reality behind all those external things? What about the truth underneath that's not so quick to be seen? That's the focus of the scripture. And that's the point of this litmus test that God gives us here. Do all those outward things of religion really show the working of God in us? Or are all those religious trappings over only a cover-up for a life that at the heart is really no different from anyone else. Well, here's the litmus test that James gives us, that the Holy Spirit gives us through James, so that we might get an early indication of whether our faith is true or false. Let me read it, verse 26 and 7. If anyone considers himself religious, and yet does not keep a tight rein on his tongue, he deceives himself, and his religion is worthless. 
Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. I think this really boils down to two truths here, and the second one has two parts of it, so maybe we could say it's three things, but two truths. The first is this. Don't kid yourself. Your tongue exposes your heart. Your tongue exposes your heart. One of my favorite little quips is one used by uh, Abraham Lincoln when he said, better to remain silent and be thought a fool than to open your mouth and remove all doubt. In other words, he says, your tongue exposes your heart. Keep a rein on your tongue because it will show what's inside. Here James challenges our supposed Christianity, our self-satisfied religion with this old, very telling test. Oh, this is not a test which will identify true religion very accurately, for words are cheap, talk is cheap. But it is a pretty quick identifier of false religion. It cuts through the facade pretty quickly. Your tongue exposes your heart. A very pointed illustration that comes to my mind. I remember years ago when my son Nathan went into the public school. He had been in Christian school, and now in fifth grade we put him in public school. And we were very concerned for him to find some Christian friends at school. And so we made quite a point of that to him, and that he really needed to look for some other kids in his class who might be Christians that he could kind of build friendships with. And he immediately said, oh, there aren't any Christians in my class. Not any. Now, we're only a week or two into the, class, into the year. And, and I said, how can you be so sure? And he says, because I've already heard every one of them use curses. What do you say? Oh, well, that doesn't matter, son. <laughs> that doesn't mean anything. Everybody does that. Oh, really? God says it matters. God says, if anyone considers himself religious and yet does not keep a tight rein on his tongue, he deceives himself. His religion is worthless. God says, don't kid yourself. Your tongue exposes your heart. Jesus made the same point in kind of a different context back in Matthew chapter 15. Let me read a few verses, beginning with verse 16. Are you so dull, Jesus asked them, don't you see that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and then out of the body? But the things that come out of the mouth come from the heart, and those make a man unclean. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. 
These are what make a man unclean, but eating with unwashed hands does not make him unclean. You see, the Pharisees were all concerned for the external trappings of religion. They were so concerned that you may have make sure you do all the ceremonial washings and that you keep the kosher laws and that you only eat the right foods and that you keep the religious feasts and that you do the right things on the Sabbath days. But Jesus says, all that's secondary. What really determines cleanliness or uncleanliness is what's coming out of your mouth, not what's going into your mouth. Don't kid yourself. Your tongue exposes your heart. All the applications of this truth for us are many, and they are profound. If someone where you work or where you go to school is applying this test to you as my young son in his, he didn't know any better. He applied it to his classmates. What do people think of your Christianity? Does it prove true? Or does your tongue expose that it's only a facade? Oh, and think about those most common Christian sins. The gossip, the half-truths, the slander, the backbiting. Is it conceivable that we really have pure hearts? And yet we take it for granted that churches are full of such talk? God says, don't kid yourself. Your tongue is exposing the heart. Oh, and then the filthiness and the coarse jesting and the risque talk that we take for granted in our culture, it's everywhere. Is that possible that that's coming from pure hearts? The Bible says to us, it should not even once be mentioned among us, such things. I don't know about you, I hear people who claim to be Christian talking that way all the time. Bible says not once because our tongue exposes what's inside and then in a more positive way what about our teaching we teach our kids we teach them all the time talk 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 our kids say we're always telling them something but in all that teaching all that continual talking and telling them to do this and not do that do we ever teach them are we continually explaining to them the things of God? Is it possible that we really know and believe the truth in our hearts, but it never comes out of our mouth to the ears of our children to be explained and taught as true, to be believed? It's not possible, you see. What we find important enough to teach our children reveals what's important in our hearts. Don't kid yourself. Your tongue exposes your heart. It's a litmus test. Now that tells us some things. Oh, but what about a person who consistently talks a good religion? Does his talk then guarantee that his religion is valid? Well, no, not necessarily, because there's another test here in verse 27. That second test is this, that God expects us to be like Jesus. 
God expects us to be like Jesus. We, we have an expression that we use sometimes, like father, like son. Or we say it sometimes, the apple doesn't fall very far from the tree. In other words, uh, I've seen it in my own life, my strengths and my weaknesses. I just spent a few days with my mother and I think, oh, isn't this remarkable? That's where I got this. And when I see my father, it's the same. That's where I got this. Like father, like son. And I see it in many of you. I don't know all of your parents, but when I meet your parents, I often go, oh, that explains that. <laughs> like father, like son. Now, Christianity, as defined by the Bible, is nothing short of becoming and living as the children of God. Chosen by the Father before time began, bought by the Son who died on the cross to pay for our sins, and given new life by the Spirit who applies all of that to us when we hear and believe the gospel, gives us faith to believe it, and changes us, makes us the children of God. And so being made children of God, we share... Peter says we share in the very divine nature with God's nature. We have the nature of our Heavenly Father. We're not only created in His image as human beings, but in, in Christ we're recreated and given Christ's new life in us by His Spirit. And so what might we expect that life to look like? That new life given to us by Christ. Well, like father, like son. As our human life reflects the life we receive from our parents, so our life in Christ needs to be reflecting, will certainly reflect, the new life we have received from the Father who gave it. God expects us to be like Jesus. Because in him we have been made the sons, daughters of God. Now I think that's what this verse 27 is saying. Hard to know how to preach verse 27 because it can easily become empty moralisms. Do good things, take care of the widows and the orphans, and, uh, and lead a good life. And we could just stand up here and pontificate about little moralisms all day long, and, and that would be it. But the Bible always goes beyond that. The Bible doesn't just give us moralisms and scold us, scold us. It gives us more substantive truth than that. And I think that's what really is going on here. In these calls, in verse 27, to some holy things, some, some, some kinds of godly behavior, God is calling us, I believe, telling us that he expects us to be like his son if we are the sons of God. That we would look like his son. God expects us to be like Jesus. Now, if that's true, what does that look like? What would we look like if we were like Jesus? Well, two things are mentioned here in verse 27. First of all, God expects us to be like Jesus in that we help the helpless, as he does. Help the helpless. In other words, if we're like Jesus, we should be full of grace. If we're recipients of grace, 
We should be displaying grace. Even in the Old Testament, this was a litmus test of the faithfulness of God's people. I think back in Isaiah, let me read a few verses. In Isaiah, the very first chapter, God is uh, condemning his people. He says, the multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord? I have more than enough of your burnt offerings. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and goats. When you come and appear before me, what is this trampling of my courts? I, I, I can't stand your prayers, and I can't stand your appointed feast. And you, they've become a burden. I'm, I'm, I'm weary of all of this. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I'm not going to listen to you. In other words, all these external trappings of religion, God says, I don't want any of that. I'm tired of listening to you. I'm tired of your burnt offerings. I'm tired of your worship. Why? Verse 17, stop doing wrong, learn to do right, seek justice, encourage the oppressed, defend the cause of the fatherless, plead the case of the widow. He says the same thing over in chapter 10 of uh, Isaiah. Woe to those who make unjust laws, to those who issue oppressive decrees to deprive the poor of their rights and withhold of justice from the oppressed of my people, making widows their prey and robbing the fatherless. See, way back then, way back then, God gave his people this test. Helping the helpless was a litmus test of whether they were truly his people or not. Now, why is that such a good test? Because it's assumed that everyone will help themselves. And everyone will help those who can help you back. You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours, right? But orphans and widows, especially in a patriarchal society like we have in the Old Testament, have no protection under the law, don't have any ability to benefit any other, don't have any way to make it worth your while to help them. And so to help them, the helpless, is a one-way street. It is giving, getting nothing back. It is pure grace. It's showing mercy. And getting no payment. Getting no benefit. But you see, God is like that. Psalm 68 says so. Sing to God, sing praise to his name. A father to the fatherless, a defender of widows is God in his holy dwelling. God is a helper of the helpless. And so when Jesus comes into the world to show us the Father, what do we see? He's not out playing politics with the Sanhedrin, with the Pharisees. No, he's a helper of the helpless. He's a friend of sinners. He's a healer of the sick. He's one who lifts up the downtrodden, who touches the untouchable lepers, who gives hope to the poor, who seeks justice for the oppressed, who sets free the prisoner. Like father, like son. And now in Christ we have become sons. Should it not then be for us, like father, like son? 
Oh, I must tell you, this has not been characteristic of evangelical churches in our day. We have not always been quick to help the helpless. Because others have pursued those concerns through unbiblical means and have given up the gospel in the process, we have too often labeled any help of the helpless as some social gospel and we've thrown out the baby with the bathwater. But God expects us to be like Jesus. And that means that we will be full of grace. Compassion for the needy. Helping the fatherless, the widow in distress. Just like God does. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress. In other words, God expects us to be like Jesus. Oh, but that's not all it means to be like Jesus. There's a second thing here. God expects us to be holy as Jesus is holy. You see, our likeness to our parents is not just that we have similar habits. It's much more profound than that. We, we look like them. We think like them. We react like they do. We love the things they love. We hate the things they hate. We do things the way they do them. Now, that's not entirely true in regard to our parents, but it is to be entirely true in regard to our Heavenly Father and holiness is what God is. Holiness is not something God does. It's what God is. He is holy. He is separate from sin. He is separate from all defilement and corruption. He is totally untainted by anything, inconsistent with his pure character. And so it's not surprising that when Jesus came, that what we see in Jesus is a life of absolute holiness. Because he came to show us the Father, and like Father, like Son. In fact, Jesus was so holy that when they went to accuse him in his trial, they couldn't find anyone who had an accusation. They could only convict him for claiming to be who he was. <laughs> you see, Jesus was not primarily concerned for the external ceremonial washings. He was concerned for purity and cleanliness of heart and soul. Never once was Jesus involved in a sex scandal. Never once was Jesus involved in some fraudulent financial deal among his disciples. Never once was Jesus named with some underhanded power-grabbing scheme. No, he was like his father, the Holy One of Israel. He was holy. Holy. And now in Christ, we are made partakers of that divine nature. We're called to share his life through the spirit that he's given us. So what should our lives look like? Well, God makes it crystal clear. Be ye holy as I am holy, like Father, like Son. 
That means holiness in contrast to what's all around us. For around us is a corrupted system, which we call the world. Moral pollution everywhere. It's like the air we breathe. We cannot escape it. But we are to be unspotted, untouched, untainted by it. That's what verse 27 says. Keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Or Paul says it in Romans 12, don't be conformed. Don't allow yourself to be pressed into the mold to look like the world, to be like the world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. God expects us to be holy as Jesus is holy. Amazingly, that is a startling truth to Christians in our day. We have somehow got the notion that it's okay to dabble in the dirt. To go along with the ways of the world, to bring the ways of the world into our into the church. To, to, to come to an accommodation with the pollution around us. But God has called us to a radical break with sin at every level. To holiness. There's a great quote, several great quotes, in the biography of Jonathan Edwards, which some of us were reading on Friday evening. Here's one, though. The love and pursuit of holiness is the enduring mark of the true Christian. The litmus test. Do I look like Jesus? He's holy. Am I holy? God expects us to be like Jesus, like Father, like Son, like sons. And that means being holy as he is holy. Well, James doesn't give us here some exhaustive analysis of the Christian faith. There's no creed here of the doctrines which the Scripture teaches. Nor do we have an explanation of the gospel which is to be proclaimed to the world. That's not what's going on here. Here we have nothing about the forgiveness of sins by Jesus' death for sinners. No mention of that. Nor are we told about the coming judgment of the wicked and the blessedness of the righteous. Nothing's mentioned. We're given none of that, though all of those things are very true. James' purpose is very different here. Here in these two little verses, we are given a litmus test. A test given to those who know all about Christianity, who believe themselves to be Christians, who claim to be the children of God, people like you and me. But are we really? Is this religion really valid? Well, the two indicators. 
one to expose the false religion, one to tell whether it's true. First of all, the tongue exposes the heart. So an unbridled tongue is a sign of religion that's only self-deception. And secondly, God expects us to be like Jesus. That means grace, helping the helpless. And that means holiness, living untainted by the world. Words of grace and holiness and a life of grace and holiness Does that describe us? Or is our religion about going to church, singing the songs, being there for the special days, being part of the organization? A litmus test. Consider, brothers and sisters, whether your faith is true and real. Amen. Oh, dear Father, thank you that you've put great and profound things in such simple little terms. Lord, all these tests, these things that you say are indicators of the new life, we realize immediately are not something that we can consistently produce. We've tried and failed. Oh, Lord, may that drive us to yourself. Unless we know you, unless we have your spirit, unless you've given us new life, we will not see these things in our lives. For you, Lord, must produce these things. We could not. And so, Lord, we turn our hearts to you again this morning. We look to you in faith. We open our hearts to you, Lord Jesus, and we tell you how desperately we need you as our Savior to save us once for all, but Lord, to be saving us and changing us and making us holy every day. Oh, do that in us, we pray. Amen.